BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Aliza Pressman, and I can't get enough of this conversation about attachment. And my friend, Bethany Saltman, wrote a beautiful book called Strange Situation, A Mother's Journey into the Science of Attachment. She wrote it a year ago, actually. And she's been on the podcast before. I had to have her on again because when I hear mom guilt and the struggle that parents go through and the misconceptions about what it means to be a good parent, I know it means it's time to have this conversation. So we are talking about what attachment really is, what it is not, and how you can lay the foundation for this understanding and this way of being. And as Bethany says, attachment is like breathing. So you're doing it. If you enjoy this episode, please don't hesitate to subscribe, rate, and write a little review. It's so helpful when I hear from you guys. And as always, please DM me on at Raising Good Humans podcast on my Instagram. And I will post answers in videos, in my stories. And also please join me on Clubhouse. I am at Dr. Aliza. And I'm going to have some fun conversations there too and follow-ups about this episode. There are so many myths around what it means to be attached. And there are so many, I think you and I have talked about this, but incredibly damaging parenting books and content that misuse the science of attachment and borrow the name and don't borrow the science. So Mm -hmm. can you talk about what those myths are and what actually we're talking about when we're talking about the science of attachment. I would be very happy to do that. (laughs) So yeah, um, some of the most damaging myths around attachment are that if you don't do a certain thing, your child may not be, quote, attached. So that's the most broad, that's the big broad stroke of the whole thing. And the reason that's a problem is because attachment is a system like breathing or like digesting it is just happening. Whether or not it's an optimal or super effective attachment is another matter. 
And there are so many things that go into creating a secure attachment, just like having, you know, an optimal digestion system. And, you know, we all know that it feels really good when your digestion feels great and every everybody is different and might need different things. Lots of lemon water or some people can eat dairy, some people don't. Um, so it's, it's very subjective in a certain sense. But the most important thing is that to have a good digestive system is that you are attuned to what you need. And so much like in a secure attachment, a caregiver is attuned to what the child needs for the most part, not all the time. And the way that that happens is that the parent is attuned to what he or she needs because he or she is aware enough of him or herself that, that they can you know, feel themselves. So we use our own senses and our own bodies and our own feelings in order to understand and to feel another person, particularly the baby. And so when the baby feels felt, and this is getting, I know it sounds sort of meta, but it's actually totally, you know, grounded in day-to-day, moment-to-moment experience that we all mm-hmm. have. When a baby feels felt, they feel secure to have all of their feelings. So it's this really simple, very visceral, super duper human building block kind of experience of just feeling like you can be you in the world. And the way that a baby learns that they can be themselves is because they have a caregiver who is sort of holding the space for them. So when they are afraid, the the parent allows them to be afraid, but kind of contains the fear. When the child is sad, the the parent can do that, can, you know, hold the sadness, feel the sadness and, and sort of absorb and integrate for the baby because babies can't do that. Attachment is really a regulatory system. It's a, it's a system that helps us regulate our emotions. It has absolutely nothing to do with baby wearing, co-sleeping, breastfeeding, you know, all the things that Dr. Sears uses to hijack the term attachment in order to, you know, position his agenda, which is to have mothers at home with their babies. Some of those things can work really well in a system in a, in a, between a baby and a mother, but they are just working well because they're for them. tuned experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's so important so, to keep drilling that home to everybody because it's so uh, it's so linked with mom guilt, and it's like oh my God. it's so. Yeah. I think we both feel fairly passionate that this is just the most outrageous hijacking of science. Um, So on a positive note, you mentioned (laughs) the importance of this attachment relationship in terms of self-regulation. And I would love to to walk through some more of the day-to-day interactions Mm -hmm. of what you're talking about so that we can share with everyone how these day-to-day interactions that seem sort of so simple that it might not even be part of our awareness, but that those are in fact what grow self-regulation. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I have a teenager in my life now. (laughs) My daughter, Azalea, is who inspired my book. Um, She's now 15. And so just today, we're in Michigan, which is a a COVID hotspot. My husband and I are both vaccinated. We... um, took a, an educated risk and met some of my family in a diner 
Um, they were, you know, they had a good job. They were doing a good job of making people sit far apart and the staff was wearing masks and all the stuff, but we did do it. And Azalea is not old enough to be vaccinated yet. So she was really angry and really hurt. And she felt like, you're not taking care of me. You're, you're disrespecting me because I am vulnerable. And, you know, when I heard that, when we got back and I heard this and I saw her face and I felt so many things, you know, like I felt angry that she was getting in the way of my good time. <clears throat> I felt, I felt angry about COVID. I felt frustrated that she was getting in my face. So there was just sort of like a primal, like, you know, like, get away kind of feeling. And I, and I felt bad, you know, here's my daughter saying really reasonable things. And so I felt guilty, but I didn't want to feel guilty. So then I brought in a little bit of, you know, I, I put some walls up. So there was some, there was like a primary shame there that I didn't want to deal with. And so, um, you know, after many years of being a, a a mindfulness practitioner and doing this work for all these years, I was able in that moment to sort of see this montage of my reactivity in this moment. And I know enough, again, because I've been doing this for so long, um, but I do know that my goal is to help her just, uh, to just absorb her feelings, to help her absorb her feelings. Whether I'm right or wrong is really not the point. I had to remind myself of that with like a big, billboard. This just happened this morning. Mm-hmm. Um, and to remind myself, this is not about me being right or wrong. This is not about me being right or wrong. This is about me helping her feel her feelings. And so I just tried to like see all that other stuff and just say, whoa, I'm, I'm really so sorry you feel that way. I really understand that that must feel really bad. And I'm really sorry. And I hope that you trust that we are, we have your best interests at heart. And let's keep talking about it. And I can see why you would feel that way. And let's keep talking. And, you know, I saw her like continue to just be frustrated. But then she felt what she needed to feel. She sort of went, she was, she was allowed to go to the bottom of her feelings and come back. And there we were ready to talk and, and deal with it. And so it so easily could have been a case of me getting feeling the shame of like, oh, I think I screwed this up. And instead of wanting to feel that shame, just go into like, you know what? This is none of your business and you're a kid and you don't get to decide and stop getting in my face and it's going to be fine. And that is not the road to a secure attachment because that's the road to her going underground with her feelings. Mm -hmm. And she's old enough now to be able to, you know, I feel like she would be able to handle that. But if that's what's going on, that's a pattern. You know, the content that I just shared is teenage content. When you're a baby, the pet, the, the content is, you know, crying, hitting, upsetness, that the same stuff is going on in the mother's brain. Like, I don't know how to handle this. Maybe I'm screwing up. I, you know, but if we can just remember the goal is not to be right. The goal is to help the child feel their feelings. That is our job as attachment partners. And And it's so much easier. It is so much easier because you don't have to have the right answer and you also don't have to be right or wrong. It's not, it's a dynamic relationship. So that exactly that morning experience you have, which I'm so sorry. And I have a feeling we've all had that same 
similar conversation or experience lately with, with the older kids, because it is such a strange time where now vaccinated adults are, I think there was an get about this, but they just have a little bit more freedom all of a sudden. And the kids are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Right. Exactly. Um, And it's a mixed message. Like I totally get how they're feeling. And also there's that sense of, I wouldn't put you at risk. I've made this choice. I know that you're safe, but that in a dollar, when your kid is feeling those feelings, isn't, it's not going to really do anything. Right. Um, When it's unfair, like she can't go and hang out with her friends in a restaurant. Right. It is. And we've been unfair. I mean, this is a whole other thing, but yeah, 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 yeah. You know, adults have not been super fair or it just has been an unfair situation for young people. So it adds to the emotional response. I think it's really beautiful to just point out that that conversation could have been an interaction with an infant and a mother. Yeah. Because these same things happen constantly every day, all day. And (laughs) it's really important to just translate it to different ages and also yes. Yes. it didn't change your plan, which I think right. is where that's just part of limit setting. Right, exactly. You don't have to get rid of, because I think that's another myth we could bust that if you have this beautiful, secure attachment that you're not going to ever piss off your kid because you're not oh, saying God, no to something. <laughs> no, I mean, that's the whole thing that it's like such a paradigm shift. It has nothing to do with what you're doing. It has and everything to do with how you're being and how you're feeling. And so you can just as easily translate that experience into a conversation you're having with yourself. In fact, that's the most important relationship we all have. So, you know, we could, you know, amplify, zoom in on the conversation that I what I might have with myself in a circumstance. Like, oh my God, Bethany, I can't believe you did that. Again, what is wrong with you? Um, you know, you're such an idiot. Can't you see, you know, three steps ahead, you know, whatever the thing is. And to be able to have the recognition that I just need to absorb my own feelings. And that's my job as, a, as an adult to not get caught up in all the what ifs and all the details of the, the you know, content. But to, yes, we need to make decisions in the world. But, you know, I'm much more interested in the way that we relate to each other because I have experienced and the science supports that that is really where we come into a kind of blossoming. And it's when we can destroy as well. You know, that's where our power is and how we meet feelings, our own, our children's, the world's, you know, our pets, (laughs) all of it. Mm. So I like that you say attachment is like breathing and I'm, I'm not sure the origin of that statement. Um, I think I, I think I made that up. It's a beautiful, I know, you know, it's so hard with this science because so many of us in this field, when everybody talks about revolution, like revolutionary thinking or revolutionary anything. I'm like, it's, it's actually not revolutionary. It's just a matter of seeing it. (laughs) Totally. Like I always say, the Buddha did not invent enlightenment, right? John Bowlby and Mary Andrews did not invent attachment. Mm -hmm. They just noticed this thing. They noticed. I think people get really excited by revolutionary concepts and 
paradigm shifts and new science. But what I think is so interesting about saying something like attachment is like breathing. It's just, however you can receive the science is the best way to receive it. So if you need to hear that this is revolutionary and nobody's ever talked about it like this, right? then then great. That's okay. That's okay. But, um, but it's not, but it is um, still misunderstood. So what a clean way of saying something. If, if all else fails, just think attachment is like breathing. Like we know how to breathe. Exactly. And when we are, I mean, I'm going to not, I'm going to take your beautiful writing and then butcher it. So it's better if you explain that. Oh, <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting because I, I heard from someone recently saying, you know, it's great for you to say attachment is like breathing, for instance, but what about if people have an insecure attachment, then it's not like breathing. Well, it is. It's just, they need to practice a different, right? Like it kind of. Exactly. So yeah, let's use that. Yeah, no, it's, it's good. You know, because it's like breathing for all of us, but some of us have impaired breathing, whether you smoked your whole life or whether you were born in a certain way or whether you've been constricting your diaphragm because you've been traumatized or, you know, we can all become more efficient data processors. It's another thing I've been talking about a lot lately, like, and it sounds sort of cold, but if we think about attachment as a as just a, a way of processing our information, our data, the human data that comes through us, our feelings, our sensations, our reactions. And when we have a secure attachment, we have a more stable way of processing all of that so that we're a little more accurate in how we're seeing the world. We're a little more able to be coherent in our storytelling. We're a little more able to identify what other people are thinking and feeling. This is true. This is science. This is what the whole science of attachment has revealed. And it's a beautiful thing to see in your life and in, in your storytelling. And you know, I work with writers and it's just such a wonderful experience to, to walk people through the story they can't stop telling as a way of becoming more coherent as a writer. Um, it you know, really overlays wonderfully. So if someone is quote, insecurely attached, the work is exactly the same as someone who is securely attached. There's no difference. It's like, we're all doing, the work is the same for all of us. It's just to become more and more aware of the way we're breathing, of the way we're loving, of the way we're feeling, of the way we're connecting and the ways we're not connecting and the ways we're holding our breath and the ways we're not loving and the ways that we're overwhelmed with, you know, resentment, hostility, fear, Etc. There's only one thing to do, and that's to become aware of who we are and how we feel. And the difference and the way that we can really change the game is we change that goal. You know, like when I was telling the story about Azalea, for me to know in my heart, like I have really determined that I feel that the most important thing is for me to help her experience her feelings so I can bring that back. So the work is the same for, we're all doing the same exact thing. We just have different goals. And so what I would really invite your listeners to do, if they are in fact interested in establishing a more secure attachment is to just think about the fact that to develop a secure attachment with your child, the only way to do that is to use yourself as the the breeding ground for that. 
to be to develop a more secure attachment to yourself. And so to always come back to that when your child's driving you crazy, it really means something is going on inside of you that's driving you crazy. You can't handle the the irritation or the frustration or the anger or the sadness or the distractibility. And it's all so incredibly valid and legitimate. But so the work isn't to change your kid. It's to, from an attachment point of view, the work is not to change your kid. It's to, it's to better understand and better feel your own, to better absorb your own feelings, work through it so that you're available to help your kid. Exactly. So that you're available. And I want to pull out something that you mentioned because people also often imagine and the original attachment studies were about infants, but it's not like you establish this attachment and then that's that. And so no, you just said (laughs) something that everybody, I want, I just want everybody to hear really clearly, which is if you're interested in this secure attachment relationship, or I'm not quite sure how you put it, but that is because you said that because this is not one and done like a moment and then you're bonded and that's that it's a process and it's dynamic. And so it's yeah. not too late. So if you have that Never. In your stomach, let that feeling give that comfort. Let's go through that. So I do want to talk a little bit about how this is, of course, there's tons of, there's tons of stuff happening in the early years. And so mm-hmm. if you're listening to this and you have a baby or you're pregnant, this is great. Yeah. Um, yeah. And also if you have a teenager, this is great because you can yeah. still move towards this. And if you have a grown child. And if you have a grown nope. child. Mm-hmm. And you feel it's too late. It is absolutely never too late. You know, it is absolutely never too late. There is no, you know, from a Buddhist point of view, from a you know mystical point of view, which I am a big fan of. There, it really is no past. Every single moment is contained in the present. And that is true for healing. And so when we heal in the present, the past changes. One of the things that I wrote about in my book is my relationship with my father, who has was dead long before I wrote the book. And about my relationship to him and thinking all these things about him. And, and through the process of learning about attachment, I really transformed my relationship with him, even though he is dead. And that relationship is changing my relationship, my daughter's relationship to him, again, even though he's dead, which will absolutely affect her relationship with her own children and so on. And so that's just one example of how transformation is just something that occurs and will always affect our present day experience. So just to you know, put that into people's heads as well you know that there is there's there's magic going on all the time and when we are healing the world is feeling that typical children's products are basically candy in disguise filled with two teaspoons of sugar unhealthy chemicals and other gummy junk growing kids should never eat And that's why Haya was created, the pediatrician-approved superpowered chewable vitamin created by two dads tired of children's vitamins that cause more problems than they solve. Haya is designed for kids of all ages and sent straight to your door in a package families love so parents can have one less thing to worry about. 
Did you know that 93% of kids don't eat enough fruits and vegetables? And we all know what kids eat instead. Chicken fingers, macaroni, processed foods, ice cream, and more. And the vitamins that are supposed to fill those nutritional gaps are based on out-of-date nutritional guidelines from the 80s. So Haya fills in the most common gaps in modern children's diets to provide the full-body nourishment our kids need with a yummy taste they love. So they're still liking the vitamins, but it's not the garbage that it's often packaged in. In fact, Haya is made from a blend of 12 farm fresh fruits and vegetables and supercharged with 15 essential vitamins and minerals that are known to support a healthy immune system, energy levels, brain function, mood, teeth, bones, and more. It's non-GMO, vegan, dairy-free, allergy-free, gelatin-free, nut-free, everything else you can imagine, free of all of that. We've worked out an exclusive offer with Haya for their best-selling children's vitamin. So Raising Good Humans listeners receive 50% off your first order. To claim this deal, you have to go to Haya Health, H-I-Y-A-H-E-A-L-T-H.com slash humans or enter the code humans at checkout. That's H-I-Y-A-H-E-A-L-T-H.com slash humans. Full discount applied at the checkout. Spring is here and summer is just around the corner. So why not get your young innovators super cool steam products to celebrate the end of the school year? With a KiwiCo subscription, your child gets a new crate full of fun science and art projects every month. For trailblazing toddlers to more experienced explorers and every stage in between. As a parent, I know how hard it is to find creative ways to keep the kids busy and screen-free while stretching their brain. And look, sometimes, in fact, many times, kids come up with the coolest stuff. But there are moments when you just need to give them a little start and then they have something to do totally independently. And it just feels like there has been so much screen time and there is a balance between screens and just free range. So with Kiwi Company, you can find something for every kid every month and you get 30% off your first month plus free shipping at any crate line with the code H-U-M-A-N-S, humans, at kiwico.com. That is 30% off your first month at K-I-W-I-C-O.com, promo code humans. Ancient Nutrition has one goal. They want to transform the health of every individual on the planet And that's what drives them to create whole food nutritional products made with real ingredients. Every product they create is rooted in tradition and supported by science. Ancient nutrition is based on traditional Chinese herbalism and Ayurveda, which are ways of eating and thinking that have survived generations. And then they combine it with today's modern research. They believe that proper nutrition isn't just about eating the right foods. It's about ingredients that your body can really use. And so they source those ingredients, the highest quality they can, that are rigorously tested for pesticides, herbicides, and heavy metals so that they can create products that our bodies can easily digest and absorb. Every one of the products has a purpose. My favorite one is the multi-collagen protein And so I think that's a great one to start with. It's just a powder. It has no taste. It has no smell. And you just put it in your morning coffee or tea or 
whatever you like to have in the morning and it dissolves quickly and you get better skin and hair and joint discomfort is reduced and it's just really good for your skin. I love it. So go to ancientnutrition.com and use the code humans, H-U-M-A-N-S for 20% off your first ancient nutrition purchase. Hey, it's Patrick Starr. I'm coming straight to you with my very own podcast. Say yes to the guests. I'll be hanging out with some of my fiercest friends and spilling some serious tea on business, beauty, and being a boss-ass bitch. With me, baby, you'll never know what will happen. Find yes to the guests on Apple Podcasts or anywhere where podcasts are played. Start streaming and downloading now. And don't forget to subscribe because every Monday we're going in. We got so much to chat about. So turn it up and say yes to the guests. Yes. So now I want to expand that because if you are interested in this, it's crucial to look back and think about that past in order to move forward, to heal, to be present. And so let's maybe go through what it might look like or feel like in your nervous Mm -hmm. system if that Mm -hmm. attachment relationship was insecure. Right. Well, first of all, you're probably not going to know that. And everybody who's listening probably thinks that they had an insecure childhood. Yeah, actually, and- just to, to simplify it, do you want to walk through kind of, and I, I, this is so hard to do, except I know you can do it very quickly and, and seamlessly. It's, it, this is a much bigger topic, but broadly speaking, let's just walk through what we're talking about when we say secure versus insecure. Sure, and what types sure, sure, sure. And, and what it might feel like. Sure. Yeah. So I will limit it to really just the infants in this, in the strange situation, because the attachment styles thing that people are really into and like how they are in relationships and everything is something I'm not certainly not an expert in, but I also have some opinions about. So um, I really always tell people to assume that they will never know if they're secure or insecure and to just keep doing the work. But with that said, in, in the strange situation, which is a series of separations and reunions between a, an infant and their caregiver. And the that behavior, strange situation, just sorry to do this to yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no. But just in case people haven't heard of this, the strange situation is sort of the, the way attachment was operationalized in the science. Exactly. So it's a laboratory procedure. It's not an experiment per se, because there's no control group. You're not trying to discover anything. It's more of like seeing how each caregiver um, has, it's it's a way of, it's like, it's better to think of it as like an x-ray machine than an experiment. It's a way to like put a relationship through Mm -hmm. an x-ray and to see into the nature of that relationship the pattern of that attachment relationship. The question that's really asked in that looking is, does, and this is how I put it, does the child know where their bread is buttered? Can they use the parent as a secure base under times of stress? It's really that simple. And the research has shown that, you know, based on the first year of life, there is a very large percentage of probability that what what the way a child behaves in the strange situation is indicative of the way that they were parented in the first year of life. Classic secure baby, when they are left alone in the strange situation, which is a room with toys and a very ordinary kind of experience with a baby being left alone, um, they will behave in any 
manner of ways. I mean, security has absolutely nothing to do with temperament insofar as, you know, secure babies come in all shapes and sizes and temperaments. Yeah, so that's some so babies when they're left alone, so important. Some secure babies are going to freak the F out when, they're, when their caregiver leaves and like, you know, run around and search and search. Um, others sit quietly. Others just look sort of forlorn. However, research has shown that every single baby universally will be under stress when left alone, but it's going to look different. So that's temperament. Um, and then when the parent returns, the secure baby will go for the parent in whatever way they are and request comfort, receive it, and then return to playing with the toys that they were playing with before in whatever manner they were playing with it before. So it's really not about like, what does the baby do, but how do they return to their own homeostasis? So if you've got a really hyper kid um, and they freak out when the parent leaves and then the mother comes back, the caregiver comes back, they get their, their uppy and they're back to being hyper. A child who's more chill and just sort of like, you know, subtly playing with toys might get really upset also. But then when the parent returns, they will go back to how they were before, subtly playing with the toys. That's the efficient data processing that I was talking about. is in the field, it's called attentional flexibility. You're regulated enough to be like, oh my God, the world is coming to an end. Oh wait, the world's not coming back, not coming to an end. I wonder what's going on with that shape sorter. <laughs> that's such a great... And- description. And and you can see that. I mean, that's what you can see in people. That's what I see in people. That is a little terrifying sometimes. Like, you know, people who have the ability, the capacity to move through their feelings and not get caught. That attentional flexibility is the hallmark. It's so interesting to watch. Um, So that's a secure baby. The insecure avoidant baby is just like secure baby, very upset when when they're left alone. However, when the caregiver returns, they don't reach out in the same way. They hesitate, they turn their back. They, even if the caregiver says, hey, come come here, come here, they, they refuse because they are angry. And this was a source of conflict in the early stages of the research. Like, can a one-year-old really be angry? The answer is yes. It's not what you think. It's not like when you go away on a trip and your baby's mad at you and you know they, they won't look at you. It's probably not that. But in the strange situation, there is a, an element of resistance that they, they have learned over time that they aren't going to get their needs met. They're not going to get their bread buttered in the way that they want it. So they are going to avoid the parent. But what's more important, and this is why this, People often say, well, I could tell my baby was mad at me when I got back because she wouldn't pay attention to me. That may be true, but it's so important that we keep strange situation insight in the confines of the strange situation because it's such a specific function and, and it's designed for this. And it's not a parlor game that we can see happening in other circumstances. So I really caution people against trying to yeah. extrapolate. But I mean, I know it's so tempting to do, but, but so the baby, but I am just like, you know, more and more getting totally intrigued by is that the baby is not so much avoiding the parent. I mean, yes, but what they're avoiding their feelings. That's right. And that's so, and that's the heartbreak. That's the heartbreak. The thing that, you know, that we probably won't dive into today that what you mentioned is just what 
that avoidance of those feelings is what some people might recognize. Yes. Later. Right. Like that, that, just right. Might be, that might be something which doesn't necessarily mean that you have this avoidant and scare attachment, but it is just something to notice. Like, is that something that I tend to do when these feelings arise? But here's the thing, and this is where it gets funky. Maybe we can do a whole piece just on this. If you're noticing, then it's not right. happening. Good point. Oh my God. Yes. Say this, please. So what's, what will happen if you are truly an avoidant person is that people in your life are going to tell you that this is happening and you won't believe them. Mm -hmm. This avoidance thing is not an idea. It is. I mean, I'm getting goosebumps as I'm talking no, to you about No, but it's a this. nervous system response. Oh my God. Right? And, and, and well, it's a, it's a regulation. It is goes away. You know, people aren't choosing to avoid their feelings. No. They, they are not accessible. It's say very that Say that louder because that, that is sort of another hallmark that's so important and gets misinterpreted oh because also people so can get sad. mad at you. Oh God. Well, yeah, it's infuriating. And, and, you know, so yes, when, when someone, when the baby is in the strange situation and avoiding the parent, they are, they may be avoid, avoiding the parent, but they're really avoiding themselves. And that is the human tragedy. And that is why I am so passionate about this work. And that is why I have like a billboard in my mind that my goal is not to be right or to do something for my daughter, but to help her feel deep inside of herself, whatever the hell it is, even if it means it's hating me. Now she's not allowed to behave in hateful ways toward me, but she's allowed to um, feel that way. She can feel whatever the heck she wants to feel. And I hope that she feels everything and that she feels safe enough within the confines of her body to feel everything. And yes. that is, I mean, that's, those are my values in the world. That is what I care about. That is what I love. That's my bread and butter. That's my love language, you know? So for people who are interested in this and people sometimes think they are, but they're not, and that's fine. Not everybody has to be an actual attachment parent. Not everybody has to want to do this because it's very different. It is a very different type of parent experience to really let go a bit of some of the behavior stuff and focus more on the feelings stuff. Cause there are choices that a person has to make in life. You know, we can only do so many things. But so that's the avoidant thing. And that's my biggest interest. I just find it fascinating and I see it in the world and it's just incredible. Um, it's like, it's like, it's like the avoidant baby gets like a lock around their heart and they don't know it's there. Oh, wow. You have such a way with words. Thank you. It's so sad. It's yeah. very, it's very sad. And anyway, but then the resistant slash ambivalent baby is the baby in the first year of life where they got a lot of mixed messages. So when they are upset and the caregiver returns in the strange situation, they go toward the parent and then they retreat and they get up and climb up for the uppy, but then they slap away and they want to get down, up and down, up and down, or they are in for a hug and then they bite the parent. You know, it's like classic <laughs> stuff. Ambivalence. They're also angry and they're afraid. 
because it's a disorgan. It's not literally disorganized in the clinical sense, but it's a disorganization of, you know, not knowing where their bread is buttered. Like, do I go here? Do I go there? What do I need to do in this life in order to just have this person feel me? And of course, if the parent themselves, if the mother herself has a hard time feeling herself, it makes all the sense in the world why she will have a difficult time feeling the baby because the feelings are threatening. And it's really not a shameful thing. It makes so much sense. It's so reasonable. And there's so much help available, ideally, you know, different resources for different people, as we know. Um, I actually do a free study group at once a month, the second Tuesday of every month for people who want to look deeper into this, the secret teachings of Mary Ainsworth, I call it, um, because I'm so passionate about wanting people to take this up and to have a place where they can think about and talk about um, this work and how it affects us. But, you know, it's, it's big stuff. It's big stuff. It's, it's such big stuff. And also it's something you can take on. So we, yeah, have, exactly. we can take it on. And yes, we really only, can. Sometimes so much of parenting, I know, and I, I deal with this tension all the time in my own work, but, and of course in my own parenting life, but um, so much of it is we want exactly what to do or say or how to be. Right. Because that's so concrete. And sometimes that's what you have the bandwidth for. And I certainly want to, you know, toggle between giving information and tools and support. Yeah, absolutely. Except there's this other thing that that when you do have the bandwidth, the most powerful thing you can do is kind of deal with this stuff. Yeah. It has nothing to do with our kids. It has to do with how we move through the world. So I think... right. if somebody's interested or ready or feels like it's time, there's a never ending place to go to process. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't mean to make it sound so dramatic, like you're into it, you're in it or you're not, you know, I mean, you do such a beautiful job of talking about so many of the things that parents need support on, but always from, you know, I know from knowing you and, and your work that you are coming from this place. And to always just have like, you know, an open hand about it and that, you know, this is, these are things that you can think about. And look, I was a young mom who had a baby. I didn't know what the hell was going on. So I totally understand. I want people to get all the information and to make decisions. And, you know, these things are life or death when you have a baby. I get it. You really want to know what the hell to do about solid food and all of those things. And it's really important. But to get your information from good sources that are that don't have any skin in the game is really important. Ugh, yeah. I mean, we keep saying that, and um, and you even mentioned Dr. Sears, who has written quite a few best-selling books. But I think the reason that we feel strongly about that is that as much as there's so much helpful content and support out there, there's stuff that can be hurtful, and you don't even realize it hurtful to you, absolutely the not the caregiver more than the child. Oh, for sure. Well, mom shame is the patriarchy's favorite tool and it keeps women totally um, in an avoidant stance because shame is the biggest obstacle to doing that work of feeling your feelings. 
in order to help your child feel theirs. And if we're stuck in a shame cycle, which is so common, and because we're told we're supposed to be a certain way or feel a certain way. I mean, Dr. Sears says that, that you know, picking up your baby when they're crying is supposed to feel natural. Well, guess what? When you are freaking exhausted and angry and resentful, it is far from natural. And so basically he's telling you, if, if you're not feeling the way he says you're supposed to be feeling, you're not natural. Right. Well, that's that's a shame. That's I don't know problem. what is. Yeah. That is a man. I mean, this is just like, it doesn't get any plainer. A P, uh, you know, an MD in the white coat, you know, the whole bit telling women what's freaking natural. Like, mm. no, no. For some people no. it might be. For some yeah, people it won't be. And, and be quiet, Mr. You, Dr. Sears. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really? No, that that is, it's, I definitely, that one sets me off. I love what you just said, by the way. Mom shame is the patriarchy's biggest tool. That will be a quote I post on everywhere I can, including. Well, yeah. It's a good tattoo. Yeah, it's my my cross to bear these days. I'm just, the letters I get are so heartbreaking from women who believe that they are harming their children. They love them so much that they are afraid that they're hurting them because they, they're like, I mean, you know, you get this all the time, way more than I do, but you know, this, this love that is so true and so sincere. And, and instead of riding the wave of love and joy, they are turning it into this dark, fearful thing that how somehow they're screwing it. They're, they're hijacking their own bliss with this fear that they're screwing up their kids because they're not good enough. Mm, yes. It's really harmful territory. And it's an epidemic. And it's, it's getting quite a bit worse right now as people at their all time mom shame high. Um, and, and yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's clear how we yeah. feel about this. I'm thinking so. Yeah. Why does, <laughs> you're going to laugh that I'm asking this question, but I know, I know that you have a beautiful answer. No pressure. When people are listening, <laughs> when we're talking about attachment, mm-hmm. why does it matter? Why does it matter that your child grows up with that dynamic, with this secure attachment dynamic, if we can get ourselves to that place? Like, why should people care? Mm, wow, what a great question. Well, first of all, there is you know, a, an encyclopedic, a (laughs) library full of, you know, if you're interested in your child's external success, if you're interested in them being happy, if you're interested in them having healthy bodies throughout their lives, if you're interested in them avoiding being bullied or being a bully or um, being successful in their job, or, um, you know, having successful marriages, being, you know, a liberal, being justice-minded. These are all things that come with the territory of secure attachment. Pretty much everything you could think of being a good sleeper, being, um, you know, (laughs) of a healthy weight. Now, obviously there are no guarantees with any of these. These are statistical kinds of measures, you know. Right. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So statistically speaking, If you have a child who has a secure attachment, they have a much better 
chance of having of checking all the boxes you probably in your greatest dreams want them to have. And that is that is universal. So of course we have to control for access and for privilege and for resource. And that's another conversation which I would be happy to have. So there are all of those things that are just like no-brainers, as as we say. But there's also this thing that we talked about earlier, which is this human quality of attentional flexibility and being present. And so in addition to all of the very, very convincing literature about everything I just talked about, there is also less literature, but convincing, robust literature about the intersection between um, secure attachment and mindfulness or mind sites, reflective functioning, the things that you know Dan Siegel talks about, the ability to be present, um, which everybody you know says that they want to be like in the moment and all the rest. So a secure attachment is the best way to be present in your life and to have a full human experience. So that would be my answer. Um, there's really no reason not to strive for that. Um, but I understand that, you know, so in addition to the really external kinds of obvious reasons, there is this very heart centered thing that happens regardless of what you end up doing for work or, you know, all those things. It's just this experience. It's a quality of experience where someone is able to feel themselves, feel others and be delighted. Access to delight in someone's life. Access to delight is such an underrated quality. And it's so, it's so meaningful to the baby, the very babies looking at us. And mm-hmm. just to our own experience. So I, I love that you just said that. Access to delight. Um, the other yes. thing that you did not mention, but, and you also said you didn't really want to talk about, so I don't have to bring it up, but, <laughs> but, Go but for I'll it. a tiny bit is just, you know, thinking about, and people can mess with this so much and take weird online quizzes and it can become sort of silly. Um, but there is something about what feels like home in your body, mm. oh, in your yes. interpersonal relationships, like what mm-hmm. is home to you. And this is not conscious. And this is not like something that, in fact, you could you could even consciously not be drawn to what feels like home to you because you know that what feels like home to you might actually be the opposite of what would be healthy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I do think there is compelling literature and just anecdotally from people's experiences that recognizing that what feels like home is a really important feeling hmm. for all of us. And that feeling is sort of established. I do believe that those early experiences establish what feels like home to us. And it's not that it can't change over time, but that if you look at where your body turns towards what direction, what type of other person, what kinds of feelings you like to have and be around and, Mm -hmm. you know, where your nervous system is leaning towards is very connected to what that early experience of home is and I'm being super vague but um, yeah no 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 I I I I totally hear you I think that 
you know, from the adult attachment literature, the hallmark of a securely attached adult is that they value attachment. Right. There you go. (laughs) So what you're really looking at. So when people talk about like my relationship style, I always come back with like, well, do you value relationships? Not everybody does. Absolutely. And from an adult attachment point of view, that's the gold star as a gold standard (laughs) and the gold star. Um, you know, that's the North star. My gosh, I'm really getting a lot of metaphors mixed up here. You know what? I I love, I, I, I love having a North star. So I think that's the one to cling to there. Okay, great, great, great. So the gold, the North star, I really want to make it gold. The North (laughs) star (laughs) of adult attachment is that you value attachment. So if you are feeling like I, I want this, this is important to me, but I keep working on the weekends instead of hanging out with my family, well, guess what? You know, newsflash, <laughs> hang out with your family. Meanwhile, it's Sunday. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, I know. It's true, but uh, hey, I'm not working. I'm I'm playing, I'm loving this. I, I was about to say, you. this is not work to me. Yeah. And also my kids are just playing Uno Aww. right outside, which is such a, we haven't dusted off Uno in a long time, but we just moved, so they were like going through the games and to watch my 14 year old play Uno play Uno is hilarious, but yes, you're absolutely right. I think that's another conversation I want to keep having with you, but I just wanted to highlight that in addition to all of the wonderful things that you said about thinking about these early experiences is just, I really do buy into even the idea that these connections are important to you is very meaningful. Oh yeah. And you know, like we said before, if this is important to you and you, and you're buying in, then you're going to have to listen to the people you have come to trust in your life because you're not going to know. I promise you, you're not going to know. Yeah. When you are behaving in avoidant ways, you don't notice it because you have been wired over a lifetime of not trusting your feelings. Well, they're not coming to the surface. So that, I think you said it in a much more succinct way than I did. And we could erase everything I said and just say that how you're wired over a very hopefully long lifespan is going to make it so that it's pretty hard to recognize these things. And so we want to help our, we want to wire our kids to have these healthy connections. And that's why this work is worth it too. Yeah. And that's another reason why sometimes we have to go super cognitive. You know, I'm a big fan of cognitive work. And like I was saying earlier, like the billboard that I have in my mind to just trust that like I have made a decision that this is important to me and it's not always going to feel like what I want to do. That to me, that's being a grown up. And so, you know, sometimes you have to just make a decision. I don't want to spend the day, you know, I'd rather, I'd rather like go to inbox zero and do all the important things that made me feel good at work or, you know, whatever those things are for you, where you get your bread buttered. But I have learned enough. I've been told by the people in my life enough. My therapist seems to be in agreement. I'm sort of piecing. I seem to be piecing this thing together that the world is telling me that maybe my method isn't working. 
So I'm going to go cognitive and just make this decision based, you know, I'm going to make a choice because I think it might be a good one, not because I want it or because I crave it or because I feel it, but enough information has come through intellectually to make me think, okay, maybe I need to do something different. And then over time, if you keep doing that, you're going to start to notice like, oh, there's a feeling that that actually wants to spend time with my family. There's a feeling that actually is angry about the time that this happened and that happened. And that's why I don't want to go and play Uno or, you know, it's going to get, you'll get there, but you You just got to keep orienting toward it. Yeah. And, and what you're saying goes back to, and I think is so important is just recognizing that all of this doesn't always feel natural. And I think that's what I was right. Back to Dr. Sears. Yeah. It's back to Dr. Sears because your natural feel good feelings may only feel good that way because that's what was protecting you and what those early experiences. Right. 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 You have to be able to, like you said, have those billboards if you're trying to be aware of this. Yeah. So you have those billboards that will you know, that's also why I have a, a little bit of a bee in my bonnet about instinct. Like, mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. It, so it's another toggling thing because yeah, yes, you want to trust your instincts, trust your mom gut, trust your caregiver gut. And also what if that isn't the healthiest yeah. place you can be because you never totally. were given those healthy experiences. Now, exactly. Yeah, go ahead, please. So that I think is just, again, something to be aware of and create billboards to let you know, hey, I don't even recognize that this is the temperature that is the the healthy temperature for me to be in because I grew up in 120 degree heat. And you could also argue, see, I'm not a writer, so I can't do these um, so well. But the idea is like, whatever temperature you grew up in, you could say, well, that's what you've acclimated to and what is healthy Mm -hmm. for you. And that may be true. It could also be true that you were put in a position to acclimate to something that is absolutely not healthy. And you have to keep reminding yourself to to change your outfit so that you can feel better in a different temperature. (laughs) You make that a better Yeah, I mean, that's, no, (laughs) that is such a good way to put it though, because, I love what you just said, because what you're talking about is orienting toward delight. So if you are in a super hot room and you're wearing the wrong clothes. So, so when we break down this idea of trusting yourself or instinct, if we slow it down and really take it to a place of like, you get to be comfortable. Like imagine that moms, (laughs) you get to be comfortable. You, your feelings matter. Okay. So that means like, if you follow the breadcrumbs of that, you know, billboard, if that's something you've decided you can accept as like, you know, a reasonable idea, then that means that you may end up in the same room again and again, because that feels like home, but you're going to put, you're going to strip down to clothes that are comfortable. You're going to make it work for yourself. And then you're going to realize, wait, actually, I, I don't like this temperature room. I'm going to turn the heat down. Wait, I want to do a totally different climate, actually. I don't even like Florida. I want to live, <laughs> I want to move to the Northeast. Like, oh my God, I love it here. I, I, who knew that I actually 
that my body preferred this kind of temperature. We will never know security. We will never know delight. We will never know what it feels like to be attuned to if we don't just sort of sometimes make that decision to allow ourselves to be comfortable and, and to take, that's a risk that a lot of women are too ashamed, too ashamed, too filled with shame to make because p- women are convinced. And I am one of them that if we let ourselves off the hook and, and chase our own comfort, we won't be good mothers. We won't take care of our children. It's like all hell's going to break loose because we are, are holding so fast and so tight to this idea that we have to be perfect we, you know, so-called perfect, we have to, it's not going to be natural. We're not going to naturally attune. We're not going to naturally do that. And we don't trust ourselves. You know, so we have to put ourselves into all these crazy boxes. I also think, and this is actually something that I just talked to a dad about that he was feeling, and this is, this happens all the time when, when I talk with parents about their children's anxiety, mm. that, this is connected, believe it or not. <laughs> no, I, I believe it, of course. That his version of being, he's a, he's a divorced parent. So his version of being an amazing father, despite feeling that shame and guilt of being divorced is to accommodate absolutely every mm. need of his children that he's not living with all the time. And mm-hmm. so it's feeding the anxiety so much for his, I'm trying to keep this as vague as possible so that I don't overshare about someone. Yeah, But essentially it's too hard to imagine being a good parent, you know, and not making so many sacrifices. And so if yes. he's called yes. from a dinner or needs to change, do do anything, it feels like not responding means I'm a bad father. And it's not that different from what you're talking about because why is that that the measure of being a good parent? And and actually the, the, the tragedy of that is that that child then becomes a more anxious child. Totally. Yeah, it's like, why is that the North Star? Right. Back to your favorite metaphor. You know, like maybe the North Star is, and again, if we go back to like, is the North Star helping our ch- our children feel their feelings? I, if it is, then in a situation like that, then then the father gets to make a decision and not be driven by shame. That's right. And it may not be like, screw that kid. I'm having dinner. I'm going to, you know, it's not about that. It's not about what you do. It's about how you feel. And so it's going to be different every time and we're going to screw up and we're going to make the wrong mistake, the right, you know, whatever. But every exchange can be an opportunity for us to really dig into, okay, how is this making me feel? And what am I projecting onto my kid? And, you know, what's mine and what's hers? And then to make a decision, make a choice as the adult and stand by it and then see what happens. <laughs> 